You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. This sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. We're opening a Federal Donuts and Deezing Off together in Miami. And guess what the corporate name is? Deez Fed Nuts? Deez Nuts. nuts. Yes! <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate, or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. For this episode, I sat down with Chef Michael Salomonoff. Salomonoff is one half of Cook and Solo Restaurant Partners and executive chef and co-owner of Zahav, Philadelphia's pioneering modern Israeli restaurant. He is a four-time James Beard Award winner, including Outstanding Chef in 2017 and Best Chef Mid-Atlantic in 2011. Salomonov's first cookbook, Zahav, A World of Israeli Cooking, co-authored with Stephen Cook, won James Beard Award for Book of the Year and Best International Cookbook. In addition to his duties at Zahav, Salomonov co-owns Philadelphia's Federal Donuts, a coffee donut and fried chicken establishment, Dizengoff, an Israeli-style hummus eatery, Abe Fisher, a Jewish-American small plates restaurant, Goldie, casual falafel bar with fries and tahina milkshakes, and Rooster Soup Company, a classic luncheonette with a philanthropic mission. They donate 100% of their profits to support Philadelphia's most vulnerable citizens. More on that later in this episode. Before we get going, I'd like to share a couple things with you as this episode is rather personal for me. I started traveling to Philly regularly for work around 2009. Michael Solomonoff and his partner Stephen Cook have been extremely hospitable to me each and every time I am there. And it's not only me, it's the two girls from Paris who were sitting next to me one time at the bar. It's the older man dining solo who lives down the block from the restaurant. It's the server who used to work there five years ago that still loves coming back to eat there. For me, Philly in general has been a very kind and generous city, one I consistently call one of the most underrated cities. In fact, I'd like to change that right now and call it Rated. I also want to thank Michael for being open and honest with me during this discussion as he's faced many ups and downs in his life, including his brother David being killed just three days before he was to be released from the Israeli army. Last but not least, much of the philanthropy Michael and his partner Stephen Cook do is one of the main reasons I decided to jump into this podcast game, to share stories like the ones you will hear in this episode. His Rooster Soup Co. project you will hear about changes people's lives every single day. Please enjoy this conversation with Chef Michael. What's up, bro? Salamanoff. You're a Philly-based guy. Here's the crazy thing. We met almost 10 years ago when you had Zahav and Percy Street Barbecue. Yeah, we probably had Sochi then too, right? The Mexican restaurant? I don't know. No? We might have already sold that then. Yeah. I think we met at Zahav, which either Sarah Rosenberg, our mutual friend, or maybe like James Naro told James. Me. I think James told me that you were going to sit at the bar. Yeah. It was one of the first places that I went into in Philly and I just sat at the bar and the next thing I knew I had like badass Israeli food and beyond in front of my face. Well, I I love it when you come to the bar. Cappy at the bar is like a, you know, it's like a holiday for us. <laughs> you know what I still can taste? There was a soup that it was like an oxtail soup. It almost was like a brown, clearish broth with like yeah. a meat. Was it a meatball in there or cumin? Or there it was, was probably like a Yemenite style. It probably yeah. had like a little bit of turmeric in it and maybe like even like a little bit of cinnamon. Yeah. Oh, dude. No, no, no. It was the uh, kube. It was a dumpling, a semolina dumpling stuffed with oxtail. And beet greens and beets. Yeah, that was on. Like, we stopped doing soups. It's a huff. Oh, really? Well, it's like we're a small plate restaurant, so when people order soup, it's not like a tiki drink. You can't just put, like, four straws in it. I mean, I guess you could, but... I could have put four straws in that soup. So, yeah, that definitely sort of dates anything recent. So, yeah, that was a long time ago. Do you not like putting soups on your menu? I love soup. I love eating soup. It's just really, really difficult. We'll do soups for, like, parties of, like, ten that, that, like, have, like, a set menu, but we get into trouble with serving soup because 
some people, even though everybody kind of shares, there's a stigma about sharing certain things. You'll have like a four top that will all rip apart like lava and all like double dip in hummus. But anything like liquidy, they won't share. And I'm like, the germs, you've already spread germs. It's all good, you know? I had a friend in Chicago who's a chef and he has a soup on his menu because his partner's like, you need to have a soup on your menu, but he hates it, but they're freaking delicious. What's your favorite soup of his? Oh, God. He did a white gazpacho type soup, but it wasn't chunky. It was pureed and it had like almonds and grapes and some other stuff in there. And it was so delicious. And actually, Katie, my wife, who you know, and I wound up serving it at our wedding. Oh, nice, dude. Lee's, Lee Woolen from Bocas. Yeah, Lee's like one of the best chefs in the country, in my opinion. Gazpacho Blanco is amazing, too. Yeah, they put, like, bread in there, too. It's, like, bread and almonds and grapes. It was, like, sherry vinegar. Yeah, almonds. It was so delicious. good. How did you garnish it at your wedding? Slivered almonds, toasted, like, brioche or something, maybe, like, half grapes. That was fucking good. All right, so I like to just start off with setting the tone of where we are. <laughs> this isn't too sexy. So uh, we're we're sitting in the third floor boardroom area of the Edition Hotel in the lounge area but no one's here so it's all ours and the best part is that our view is of madison square park and the original shake shack oh my god which is pretty great no line right now we met over about 10 years ago and at that time you were like philly guy which you still are but you didn't have anything outside of philly and you were all about staying in philly and as innovation happens and and i love it 10 years later, you're in New York, Miami. What changed your mind? Well, at that time, we had just opened Zahav and we were tanking. You know, there wasn't, there was no innovation. Innovation was like keeping the lights on for another week. Zahav was a struggle at that time. We almost closed our first year. Really? We opened in 2008 and it was like right when everything was sort of collapsing economically. And Philly in particular was, the Phillies won the World Series, which is great if you have a bar with a TV, but not if you're like an Israeli restaurant. It was a rough, rough year. I was struggling with like substance abuse issues and I was in like rehab and all that stuff. And yeah, we had an awful first year. Year. It was terrifying. I literally had to call my dad and borrow money from him to make payroll. Is your dad, is he in Israel? Or yeah, he's he... in Israel. I'm like, hey, I'm 55 days clean. Can I have $10,000? <laughs> and I remember him, I was like talking to my business partner, Steve, and he gets a call. It's like from my dad to be like, is everything okay? Oh, shit. You know, because it was not a, you know, I don't think we ever cashed his check. I don't think we ever actually used it, but it was like very close to, yeah, it totally sucks. So, so that was then, and we obviously have come a long way since then. And and then we opened, at one point we had Percy Street Barbecue, which we since sold. We had that and we had Zahav. So we had two big restaurants, one of which Zahav was doing okay at the time. Percy Street was not making any money. We were like getting a little bit antsy and we ended up meeting these guys that had brought Stumptown Coffee into Philly. So like that sort of wave of coffee houses came to Philly. I was talking with one of the founders of this coffee shop, Bodie. His name was Bobby, Bobby Logue. We were talking about Pennsport, which is this like section of South Philadelphia that at the time was sort of untapped. It was like, oh, there's this cool area and he lived there and he showed us this little like 600 square foot like pizza place. And then he was like, hey, do you and Steve want to do something with me and Tom? We're going to, you know, we want to open another coffee shop down there. Rent is really cheap. You were thinking about donuts. And then at the time, Steve and we were like eating Korean fried chicken wings like all the time. I was like obsessed with them. There's a really good place in Elkins Park, which is just north of Philly. Yeah, so there's this like amazing place called Soho Cafe that it's like an old Jewish population that lives in Elkins Park, but then like a lot of Koreans. So there's this amazing Korean chicken wing place. So we were eating it like all the time. And so we're like, oh, let's do donuts and then we'll do fried chicken. It was a joke. Our fifth partner, Felicia, who's a food writer, um, joined forces and we all like put in just enough money that like if we lost all of it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And it was kind of open as this flute, you know, it was a kind of a joke. And on the second day, we were like, oh shit, we've got something huge. So we opened a place that could be really scalable. Even Zahav, man, I mean, I love it. And like, believe me, we've gotten so many chances to open Zahav in different like cities, but I just don't, it is a hard restaurant. It is very personal to me. I love being able to like actually work there. It would require like hiring and training and, and it's just a lot. Federal Donuts, we can scale those and, and we're doing it. And it's not that easy, but we can do it. And since then, we've also opened off, which is what we have here in New York. And we're about to open in Miami in addition to Federal Donuts, and which is a hummus here. So we just serve hummus and pita. Does it annoy you when people say hummus? 
Yeah, well, you should hear how people pronounce Dizengoff or Zahav or my like my last name for that matter. But they're like hummus. But yeah, it's hard. I say hummus, and everyone's like, ooh, look at that. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah, hummus is. But you know what? When people <laughs> trina, that's the word because they'll be like tahini sauce, and I'm like, what the. F- that. We have like a bunch of these like little things that we that will do well in different markets that are not certainly are not easy to open when you you know they're not any, opening anything and sort of transmitting the culture of your restaurant or of your group is really difficult. It is super hard. By the time you open Federal Donuts, which I think you guys call Fed Nuts, which I love, so I'm just going to call Fed Nuts. By the time you open that, was the Hav all right? Like on a on a better path than it was. Zahav was all right, and it was making money, but it wasn't like we weren't we hadn't arrived yet. I mean, that took like years. Three, four, five. What was it? Was there a turning point, or just people the started point to get was it? Us, well, I mean, after the first year, we started doing okay, but to really be comfortable with what our sort of job or role was or responsibility when it came to like Israeli cuisine like globally, that took years because you go from this thing where you're like, oh, I've had shachuka and Jaffa. I'm going to, I'm going to like make the same thing and it's going to be great. And you're like, oh, nobody, can I swear on this? Yeah, of course. And I'm like, nobody gives a shit if like <laughs> this is the way that they make it in Jaffa because you're not in the old port of Jaffa. You're not overlooking the Mediterranean. I'm not the character that is Dr. Shakshuka. Nobody gives a shit, you know? I'm a chef. I'm not a grandmother. I'm not like a merchant. I haven't had the same food stall that has served the same food for generations. We have to be creative. And it took us a couple of years to be totally comfortable doing that. And to say, we don't have those things here, but like we've got spices, we've got live fire, we've got we've got different things that will nuance the food to make people understand what Israeli food was. So um, that that took a while to do. Wait, so you like the name Fed Nuts? Yeah, I do. Can I tell you? Can I like just between me and you? Since, yeah, since it's only us here in this lobby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're opening a Federal Donuts and Dizengoff together in Miami, and guess what the the corporate name is? Fed Nuts. No, so we're opening a fed, Federal Donuts and a Dizengoff. D's Fed Nuts? D's, D's Nuts. nuts. Yes! <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, you like that? Oh, I love that. So I feel like we need to get Snoop to be like, you know how he does that little skit? And they're like, yo, yo, we're going, we're going to Winwood, Miami. We want to go check out those two spots. What do you mean, what two spots? These nuts. <laughs> That's incredible. So let's backtrack. Where did you grow up? Or where were you? You were born in Israel. Yes, I was born in Israel, and then we moved to Pittsburgh when I was like two or three or something, and I st- we stayed there till I was 15. My wife's family's from Pittsburgh. I did not know that. Yeah, but don't ask me from where. Why haven't we like discussed I don't know. that before? Yeah, my wife's family's from there, and I meet random people from there, and they're always like, what area? And I forget the area. Can I, if I like spit out many of them? Mount Lebanon, North Hills, Squirrel Hill. Hmm. I don't know, but I went, I've been to um, Kennywood. Kennywood, the great escape. I've been to Kennywood to go downtown and eight beautiful views from those bridges. Oh my God, it's sick. Yeah, there's like 300 bridges. It's like a ridiculous amount of bridges. It's crazy. We went to Lydia Bastianich's restaurant. It's cool, dude. Although there's a lot that's been open since. You got to go back and go to Lawrenceville, which is like where in high school we would go buy like PCP <laughs> and is now like, of course, it's like hipsters and like great restaurants and my friend Justin Severino got a restaurant called Cure and Morcia and probably in my opinion makes like the best charcuterie I feel like I've heard about that Pittsburgh's a cool city but it was not a cool city when I grew up there and uh, we moved back to Israel when I was 15 so I spent a year in this like American boarding school in the north in a town called Pardeshana and then I moved back by myself and my parents and my brother stayed in, in Israel and then I finished high school got into college dropped out of college moved back to Israel. My parents had already been divorced at that point, so I just lived in my mom's apartment with my brother and we had a Russian wolfhound. You know, a borzoi, have you ever seen those? I think so. It's a giant greyhound that's like really hairy. Yeah, they're terrifying. So we had, it was like one of those yeah, and, and, so in this funny. apartment and I just, I got a job working at a bakery. For, was that your first job in a restaurant? You know, I was a dishwasher at a place called The Point, which is in Point Breeze in Pittsburgh. My dad owned like a Subway sandwich place, so I like I was like a sandwich artist in high school. Do you eat a lot of cookies when you were there? Dude, Otis Bunkmeyer cookies? Yeah. I can't even tell you because if he hears this shit, I'll still whip my ass. But I got a job working at a bakery there just and it was like me literally walking up and down the street 
looking for work. It was cool because it was like, it was like a twofer for them because not only was I a foreign worker, but I was like an American foreign worker. So they like loved it. And I, I had a really good time and learned how to work honestly. I learned what it was to be hard work, to, 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 to participate in hard work and what it was like to be the sort of immigrant, you know, like an immigrant worker. Was this was like, in Israel. In Israel. How old were you? 19. We, did you have bakery hours? Oh yeah, was crazy dude on thursday well friday morning at 2 a.m we would wake up and go in there and make challah for like 12 hours straight and was it bread baking pastry it's a little bit of bread i mean the bread there is not that time especially we weren't looking at like a lot of like like slow fermentation like not a lot of artisanal stuff but we'd make challah and baguettes and that kind of thing and then you know, we'd make like rogalach like thousands thousands of barikas and you know the bakery in Israel is like a meeting place for like the town you know because nobody gives a shit about carbohydrates over there and everybody eats baked goods and everybody participates in Shabbat whether you're religious or secular I was like used to being a sort of recluse that participated in alternative subcultures in the U.S. And then in Israel, you're like part of the community, you know? And not only that, especially in Israel, because they were like in the bakery, there were like five different languages being spoken at the same time, you know? What types of languages? Arabic, tons, Hebrew. There were tons of Venezuelan immigrants, and there was a couple Russians, and there was actually a Bulgarian too. Your parents are in Israel, and your family has experienced tragedy firsthand. Is it okay to talk yeah, about of course. this? Sure. Okay. You lost your brother. Was it a terror attack? No. So he was patrolling the northern border, and there was like a sort of an ambush. There was three Hezbollah snipers from Lebanon shot into Israel over the border and, and killed him. How old was he? He was 21. How old were you? I was 24. Were you in Israel? I was actually in the States. I was working at a Vetri restaurant at the time. And it, it happened to be, it was on Yom Kippur and I was actually driving the car that should have been his. He was also killed like three days before his release. So I was driving um, my dad's old car that was in Pittsburgh, driving it back from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia when my aunt called me and was like, you know, you need to like call me the moment you get home. And I pulled over to the side of the road and like got her to tell me what had sort of happened. How did that affect you then and, and now? I mean, it's a really hard thing to answer. I don't know. I mean, in a way, it sort of like shaped, you know, who I am. I mean, there were a lot of monumental things that brought me close to like Israel prior to that, you know, or things that kind of shape your identity or like make you, for an instance, remember like who you are. And I mean, I remember in boarding school watching Peace with Israel and Jordan, like like Rabin, like, you know, and, and King Hussein, like shaking hands and like a peace treaty happening in real time. And while I was living in Israel and I was like, man, this is just crazy. And then I moved back a year later and then Rabin was assassinated. Your sense of place and purpose is altered and always sort of fluctuating. And then, I mean, none of it holds a candle to like burying my brother. And I was there a month before and we hadn't really seen each other in like almost four years. So I was there a month before and we had reconnected and we're like besties and just, it was just amazing. You know, I was working at Vetri at the time and he at that time would close for a month, like in the summer which is like a very Italian thing to do. And I flew over and it coincided with my brother's almost release and they get like a little vacation before their end of the military. So we were in Israel together up and down the coast and it was the first time I had been there as a chef, you know? So we were like eating so much and going to the Yemeni, the Iraqi, the this, the that. And, and he wasn't a foodie, but like even the layman in Israel knows all this stuff about like gastronomic anthropology. It was really stimulating and really eye-opening and my mom bought my plane ticket under the condition that I would cook dinner for her friends which turned into like two nights of like five core you know tasting menus and all that shit and it was like amazing because we got to shop for the food went to a foie gras farm had a foie gras delivery there was a guy that would show up to my mom's apartment with a fucking bicycle and a cooler of Goosla for foie gras. No shit. And run it into the apartment. It was the coolest thing ever. Is foie gras big in Israel? Foie gras used to be huge. Now there's like Animal rights activists don't uh, permit it, it, but it used to be one of the biggest, most sought after goose liver foie gras like on that, in that part of the country or in that part of the world, excuse me. So it was amazing. We had this amazing time and then I came back, totally reconnected to David and after he was killed, I buried him with all of his, all of his buddies were finished with the army, you know, and, and, and I'd met them a, a month before that when we were like out at the club, at the beach and then fast forward a month later, we're like burying him in the ground. I mean, it was really, your sense of purpose and place was, was really big. I felt obviously a lot more Israeli and it just felt like, you know, I came back from that trip and then 
we were taking another break at Vetri and I was like, I want to go back and cook for Dave's troops. And they were still stationed in the north in this base that's like right on the border. It used to be an old British mandate base and it's like right on the border with Lebanon. And I was working for Mark Vetri and he was like, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to cook with you. You know, it's just really awesome. And I remember I'd gone there a couple of days early and then, so my mom and I picked him up from the airport and he was like super tired because he was on this like birthright tour airplane ride. And so it was like a bunch of like 20 year old American kids getting wasted on these flights. And he was like, I got no sleep because all these kids were like partying. And then, so we pick him up and then drive to the northernmost part of the country. He's cooking dinner and sitting next to like 20 year old Israeli kids that are fucking in uniform that have like a few minutes left to eat, to go back out and patrol the border, you know? And it was like, I saw this sort of transformation and I took him to the spot where Dave was killed. And it's this beautiful apple orchard in this town called Matula. You know, my brother was like a really good kid. I mean, we had great parents that like loved us and worked really hard for the life that we had and David was not violent you know he was like a normal kid you know and the way that he was killed was just so tragic and I know that it's the way that it works and that's the way the military works and war and all this stuff but like it was just for Mark to see that was important and it was transformative and I think that that kind of helped shape what it is that I do now in a way representing Israel or the sort of values and the things that Dave died defending you know Thank you for sharing all that. Totes. What was your first food memory as a kid? Or like the first most amazing meal you remember? My grandmother, man, would cook these um, borekas, which are these like Sephardic sort of Turkish flecked turnovers that are savory. So it's like puff pastry kind of that are stuffed with like mushrooms or spinach or whatever. But like Bulgarian feta was like what we would stuff them with. More sesame seeds than you could possibly imagine glazed on top. And that's what I sort of fell in love with eating as a kid. And that was also one of those like decidedly foreign things. Like it didn't coincide. Like there's no way that that uh, that could be confused with like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that all my friends were eating, you know? What's the first dish that you ever cooked that you were proud of? Well, I actually, with that grandmother, I made French toast. Oh, really? It was really fucking good. In yeah. Israel? Yeah, maybe it was either in Israel or maybe it was when she would visit us in Pittsburgh. But yeah, I remember taking like the pre-ground cinnamon and dumping it in the egg batter and just, it was like probably Wonder Bread, but fried in butter, you know, it was so good, man. Dude, good French. There's a restaurant in LA we used to go to that served French toast for, it was like a dessert, for dessert. It was like yeah. little sticks of French. I was like, I'll fucking take it. Dude, dessert, French toast is so good, you know? Do you put maple syrup on yours or do you get like cinnamon sugar or what? I put maple syrup. Katie puts butter in maple syrup on her waffles too, but matzo brai. So how do you eat yours? Okay, so I like my matzo brai not like eggy, like it's egg battered, but it's more like French toast, less of like an omelet with matzo in it. And I like it sweet when it's like that. You know, savory matzo brai is okay, but I just don't like, I don't love it. I don't know. I, my mom must have introduced this to me, but I put jam on it. Like yeah. Some salt that's, and jam. That's that, really good. Yeah. It's delicious. Yeah. Butter too is really good. Yeah. Like softened butter. Getting hungry. <laughs> I'm all over the place here. Israel, States, back to Israel, worked in a bakery, came back to the States. And what was your first restaurant job back here? So I went to culinary school. I went from the bakery in Israel to working at this like little cafe up the street. And that's when I was like, I want to be a chef. And I had kind of spent all the money that my parents had saved for me on like nothing, you know, I'd spent it on like partying and like snowboarding or whatever. So I went to the Florida Culinary Institute, which is in West Palm Beach. And I worked full time and went to school and sort of paid for school that way, which was good because it was like a real intro to like what being a chef. You worked in a restaurant during culinary school in Palm Beach? I worked in a restaurant in Boca Raton and also in Delray Beach. Which restaurant? In Boca? Yeah. It's called Big City Tavern. Now it's Rock Tacos. And then in Delray, it was called City Oyster. Are you familiar with that part of town? I lived in Aventura for a couple of years. Oh, get the fuck out of here. That's yeah. where Steve, my Stephen Cook, my business partner, uh, was born and grew up there. Really? And his dad was a rabbi there, yeah. When I went to FIU for hospitality school, I lived in Aventura for two years, and then I lived in Coconut Grove for a couple of years. Oh, that's so funny. But I lived right on the waterways in Aventura, and it was like, this is before I, honestly, not to sound ignorant, but it's before I knew there was like a large Latin Jewish population yeah. that existed. Oh, and they exist, bro. They run that shit down oh, there. Oh, big time. But it was like, you, you try and go out for a nice walk at night, and at like 11 o'clock at night during the week, they're all out like with all their kids. I'm like, these kids have fucking school? No, dude, they don't. Because I think that when you get the Jewish, Israeli, plus like Venezuelan, they turn up, dude. You know, like on school nights. What brought you from Florida to Philly? 
I met a girl down there and she was from New York and she had a brother that lives in Philly and I wanted to like work in a city. I wanted to go to New York actually and work at like Le Cirque or Danielle or whatever and we ended up kind of checking out Philly just because it was like much cheaper to live and at that time too there was this big like restaurant renaissance happening. So we ended up in Philly and it was like really awesome. And you went right to Vetri? No, actually I worked at a restaurant called Avenue B and a restaurant called Stripe Bass and Stripe Bass was where I learned how to cook. It was Terrence Fury who is an amazing chef was uh, like the exec sous at La Bernadette and then moved to Philly and we were cooking incredibly good food and at that time it was a pretty big moment. I mean we are really, really big, busy restaurant. You know, I remember like we had our own fishmonger so we'd be like bluefin tuna again for entrees with like white truffles and caviar and these like $80 like lobster entrees and it's funny because it's like god it was so long ago you know it was like 2000 or whatever and like the restaurants like that don't exist anymore in Philly you know but we used to do like 300 covers on like busy nights it was like a very serious restaurant at that time Lebec and Straight Bass were like the big deal you know and, and it was a really cool thing and Terrence actually fired me why uh, and then rehired me well at the time I was working also for his brother Patrick who was the chef of Avenue B so I was working four days at Avenue B two days at Stripe Bass and I needed to make certain that my girlfriend at the time was in like an unpaid internship which is it's a precarious position to be in when your boyfriend is like a line cook you know like there's not a lot of wiggle room so I worked six days in the restaurants and then I would work on my other day like catering or whatever so I got a job working at Avenue B so I could basically work at Straight Bass and then I worked both those jobs and had to make a certain amount of money. So Terrence Straight Bass was like, oh, you want to make 12 bucks an hour? Well, only our entree cooks make that. So hope you can do it. It was like the most competitive. Every kitchen I had worked in, I was the best at. And at Stripe Bass, I couldn't fucking do it, dude. And I would come in earlier and earlier. Were you doing it and he was just pushing you? No, or? I f- couldn't do it. I mean, I just, I like, it was like a lesson in humility because it was something I loved, something I wanted to do. I worked as hard as I possibly could and it wasn't good enough. He fucking fired me and I was like, dude, I will do whatever it takes. And he was like, well, I'll hire you at entry level Garmerger, but it's for whatever, you know, six bucks and like something, you know. And I was like, well, dude, I have to take this job because I've, ne- I've never been. Not the best. And I had already taken a job. I had to work in the Hamptons that summer because I took a job working at Sunset Beach. After that, I came back that fall and started at Stripe Bass Bottom, like Garmerger, like literally like the bottom. And in six months, I was like lead line cook running. Really? Yeah. It was like a really important lesson, I thought. I learned more in that year than. He taught me how to cook. And then I took a job working at Vetri. At the time, there were three kitchen employees at Vetri, and there was only one Vetri restaurant. I really wanted to work there. It was so different than Straight Bass, so I, I did that and did pastries there and then was like sous chef for a couple of years. And I know everyone's like, oh, millennial and all that shit, but obviously there's good staff out there. You have to find them and train Do you have staff that bust their ass and they're like coming in early and staying later, working two jobs, and you have a good staff? We have a great team. It's... The mindset is a lot different than it was. I mean, restaurants are a lot different and there are so many of them and the culture of restaurants is very different. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I fall into this all the time and I'm like, fucking, I'm 38 years old, but I'm always like, man, kids these days. But uh, it's really, we used to do, we used to basically work for free and go into like debt and like just do all this crazy stuff. And it was cool, but I don't know. I don't think it was like necessary, you know? And there was this sort of archaic system of things, which I loved because I love the craziness of it. Like I love the screaming and the yelling and the fucking like, I remember almost taking a job at Arzac. Uh, it wasn't a job. It was a it, the restaurant in, in San Spain? Sebastian. Yeah. And I was like, I was applying to be a stage there. It was fucking two years unpaid to go work for free. Like it was fucking crazy. You know, and I think, but like all at that time, all my boys were going, you know, Spanish cuisine was the thing. Everybody was going to Mugaritz and it was just what people did. And I thought that that was like amazing. But now as like a business owner and as like maybe a father or maybe like a mentor, I don't think that you should have to do that. It's crazy. It seems like a monarch system. And also going to like Europe with 30 other unpaid people cooking for like 20 people a night, that doesn't make any fucking sense to me. You know, it doesn't, it's not Yeah, you get to come back and be like, I worked at El Bulli for two weeks. Great. I'm like, great. You're one of the fucking, you're you're like a thousand people that goes there, comes back and can't open a restaurant or like pay their staff 
staff or like do anything that isn't at the top level. And I'm like, guess what, dude? That is not, that doesn't work here. And I'm like, and that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, you shouldn't rely on free fucking labor to run a business. It's weird for a consumer. It doesn't make any sense. So like, no, nobody's like coming to Zahaf to like work for free for two years, but like, I don't want them to. I want them to come in and, and be part of it. I want them to grow into, I want people to be great chefs and great managers and feel empowered and be part of like what it is that we do. You know, that's what I want. Speaking of great managers, Okan, is that yeah. your Chan's name? Yeah. Okan. I mean, that's a story right there, right? Yeah. He's Which I best. know it, but I would love for you to share it with so the people Okan listening. is, he came to the States from Turkey on like a student visa, basically, and came with like, I think 800 bucks in his pocket or something like that. And started as a busboy at Zahav and quickly became a food runner and worked his way up and is now the GM of Zahav. Got our nomination for Outstanding Service, which is fucking hilarious because we play hip hop and like make pita and laughing shit like Dude, that. do you know how many times I've been sitting in your dining room and I'll like Snapchat or Instagram like making sure they're sound to send yeah. to people and like, <laughs> dude, fucking whatever is playing. It's fun. Yeah, man, it's you know? the best. He lives and breathes hospitality and that's just kind of who he is. He He's one of three brothers. His father passed away at a really young age and he was like the oldest and really like took care of his mom and his brothers. A mentor to basically everybody that works with him and is one of, shouldn't say one of, is the most generous person I know and hardworking and is a, you know, he's a partner in Cook and Solo and our, like he crushes it and, and he, I feel like is the American dream, you know, he's like this, I don't know, I feel like what he's, he's like all the good things that we stand for, you know, he, he is, um, and he's just the nicest guy, and yeah, it's amazing to watch it happen, and so I was telling you that we like totally almost tanked, at that time, it was Ocon expediting and running, and me doing pastries in the morning, working lunch service, and doing bread, cooking bread six nights a week across from Ocon, when we would do like 17 covers a night. When I went in there, it was like two. Th- 2009-ish. How long have you been open at that? One year. Yeah, we opened in 2008. Were we struggling at that time? 2009, we had turned it around. The, the year mark was the turning point for us. And I remember we had this, like, our first year, like, Zahav's one years old, and, like, I have a huge party, and we were just like, man, thank God that we didn't have to fucking go bankrupt. Ocon at that time was a, was an expediter, and he and I would literally work across from each other six nights a week, and it was just, like, to look back now and to what it is that we had gone through was nuts. So you touched on substance abuse. I know Bruni, Frank Bruni from the Times wrote a really amazing piece, I think, about you. It was titled Grief, Smoke, and Salvation. I would highly recommend people Google it because I think it's an important piece. But when did, can we talk about this? Sure. When did substance abuse come into your life for how long? You were using during the Zahav time, right? Before as well? Yeah, I mean, we, I'll work backwards. Like today, I'm October 28th will be nine years clean and sober for me. Congratulations. Thank you very much. But we opened Zahav in May. I went to rehab in August. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to pinpoint when, and it depends on, like, what your belief of addiction is. But I, get, I mean, like, from probably from birth, you know, I've, like, struggled. But there wasn't, my parents weren't, like, they didn't drink or do drugs or anything, so it took a little bit of time for it to manifest. Like, a lot of us, I just... I partied at like a pretty young age and it was like at a point in my life, it was like the thing that I kind of did the best. And I got myself pretty deeply involved into things and somehow came away without getting arrested or dying, even though I came close a lot. So yeah, so I ended up overdosing in college, which led to my return to Israel. I had sort of chilled after that and it wasn't like me recovering. It was just like, well, I really like took that a little bit too far. And so years and years went by where I was like a pretty casual user or drinker. And then after my brother died, I came back, you know, like a week and a half later. Like it was like I buried him and I came back and then I started using things like crack and like tons of cocaine and then eventually heroin. And it was just, you know, I think in recovery, you personify the addiction a lot. And like the addiction is just sort of sitting on your shoulder waiting if you're an addict, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, people go through a lot of trauma and they aren't like, no, I'm going to start smoking crack. You know, I think that if you are like me, that's where your head goes. And it's st- it, to this day, it does. I mean, I had a horrible drug dream the other night. Now what it is is me waking up thinking that I had relapsed. And for the first five seconds of being awake, you're like, oh, my God, what happened? It just is what it is. And uh, you have to learn how to cope and recover. So I used my brother's death as an excuse to use. 
and I justified my behavior because something incredibly fucked up and tragic happened. But I mean, the truth is that's not how you people, that's not how they grieve or mourn or anything like that, as by making it about themselves and using. So it was really difficult and it's not easy. And it, everybody that was around me at that, we'd already opened Zahav and everybody that was close to me, I'd put in like a tremendous amount of... They all knew? They knew, no, they didn't know, but like eventually they knew. And then that was like, everybody's sort of rooting for you after you've like disappointed them and <laughs> lied to them. And, but it's, you know, it's a constant, I've had a, many important people in my life that through thick and thin have been there to support me. Thank God. And I have two kids that have never, I've never held high. I've never stolen from them. They've never seen me fucked up. And, and it's a really beautiful thing. A lot of people say this now, they're like, well, it must be so much easier to stay clean and sober now that you've got kids and I'm like no way dude have you ever been in a car with two little kids like <laughs> there's nothing that will drive you to relapse than that but the truth of the matter is is that if I pick up or if I use I will manipulate them like I did every other person you know and and that's a huge thing because guilt and shame the way that you deal with that stuff and grief and loss and all that when you're an addict that is not in recovery is by using. So it's just this really vicious cycle that is incredibly hard to break. What made you, did some, was someone like get your ass to rehab or were you like, it's time? My wife at the time and my business partner, Steve, and a really good friend found out and sort of like had an intervention. Yeah, it was like straight up intervention. And I think at that point, I just couldn't like lead the double life thing because while that was happening, we'd like opened restaurants. I, so much has happened and, and, and I was getting pressed and people thought it was like, you know, maybe I was just a little bit weird, right? Or I didn't need to sleep very much or whatever. And it just five years of like living this sort of double life was like a lot. It was exhausting. You know, my life was a fucking lie. You know, so it felt really good to be honest. You know, I just sort of decided at that moment I had an opportunity to like not lie and I took it and it was liberating. I mean, that happened, but then there's like, a, you know, the first year of like recovery, which is incredibly difficult. But even now, I mean, I still am, I'm, I'm active and in recovery and, and it's something that I sort of seriously contemplate every day and it's important. Well, congrats again. Thanks, dog. Good for you. Honestly, did you ever want to throw in the towel like as a cook? Were you like, were you ever like, fuck this, I'm done cooking, either as a line cook or as a restaurant owner? No, no, there's never been a time. I mean, I, you know, we're always sort of contemplating and trying to reinvent. And it gets a little bit frustrating because being a line cook and then a chef and then suddenly managing like 250 people and I don't know, we've got like 11 or 12 restaurants. It's just a lot. Your job changes like really, really quickly. It's really difficult and balance is a really difficult thing that I've always struggled with and continues to be. So I think there are moments where I'm like, man, there are like easier ways to do this. But I don't think that I've never been like, I don't love what I do or whatever. There's never been a point where I've like wanted to quit being a chef or a restaurateur. I, I need now to adjust so I can do the things that I love, which is like cooking or... I love walking in as a hub and seeing you by the bread station. It's my favorite thing to do. And now it's like the last year in particular, it's become very difficult. I literally have to like schedule myself to be there. I think it was the last time I was in Philly, I was checking out some nonprofit-based restaurant and I texted you about it. And you were like, yo, you in town? Come to Zahav. And I was like, full of shit. I ate like two restaurants already. And I was like, he's at Zahav. I have to go to Zahav. (laughs) (laughs) I guilt guilt people into coming into the restaurant. (laughs) But it's all good. You have multiple, you said 10, 11, 12 concepts. The homeless, you have Ape Fisher, Zahav, Fed Nuts. And now you have this idea for what is now open, Rooster Soup Company comes about. So I remember where I was when you told me about Rooster Soup Company. Yes. It's like a moment in my life for some reason. Well, not for some reason. I know the reason. It was in January of 2015 and I was in Santa Barbara visiting my father-in-law where he lived at the time because Katie and I were getting married out there and we were doing a wedding visit and I was driving down a road like outside Santa Barbara and near Montecito. Did I call you? You called 
called me. I called you, right? But I, your number was in my phone. I, I must have had it or Sarah gave it to me or something like that, Rosenberg. And you're like, hey, Andrew, it's uh, Michael Salmanoff. I hope you don't mind that I'm calling you. I was like, what, dude? I'm like, you think I fucking mind when you're calling me? <laughs> and you're like, I just wanted to run something by you. And I pulled over into a restaurant called Cava, which we love in Montecito. And I sat in the parking lot talking to you on my phone. And I, like, Katie's like, where are you? I was like, oh, I'm on the phone. I'll be home in a Call minute. Back, wife. Yeah. <laughs> and you had shared the Rooster Soup Company concept. So I would love for you to take us back to the conversation or why and how and when. So a couple of things were happening. We had opened a bunch of Federal Donuts and we wanted to get a better quality chicken for our customers without increasing the price. So we were like, we'll get a whole chicken. So we got these like natural chickens that were awesome. We break them down. You're left over with like schmaltzy backs and butts and all that stuff, which everyone knows makes the best soup, right? The problem was is that with... Schmaltzy backs and butts meaning fatty. Yeah, fatty. Yeah. We have like a lot of restaurants and stuff, but we couldn't keep, it would be too much stock, okay, if we were to like use it. Like we couldn't use it enough. And while that was happening, my business partner Steve was asked to be on like a board or be an advisor for the Broad Street Ministries Hospitality Collaborative or the Hospitality Board, which we then collaborated with. And basically Broad Street Ministries is a church that is in Philly. It's an amazing place. It You serve people that are hungry in Philadelphia there and it's not them getting in a line with like ladles. It's volunteer volunteer, heavily reliant upon volunteers. People sit down at tables and are served multiple courses. I think they do seven lunches now a week. I could be wrong. Maybe they do five lunches and two dinners, but it feeds thousands of people. They've got a chef, they've got budget for food, and it's awesome. In addition to that, it's also an address for 3,000 people that don't have homes, right? So if you don't have a mailing address, you can't get things like benefits. You can't apply for a job. You you can't apply for an apartment. You can't do things, right, without an address. So it's a mailbox for 3,000 people. It's also psychiatric counseling, art therapy. It's a clothing drive. But mostly the idea of like serving people that are hungry, that need it, used to be, or still is in a lot of cases, people lining up on the sidewalk. That does not dignify people. That does not make them feel like they're part of society. And Philly is one of the largest cities and like the largest port, like the poorest large city basically in the country for us and certainly for Stephen who who like had this sort of epiphany after visiting Broad Street once it was like we are you know you can't walk down the block in our city we can't walk from one of our restaurants to the other without seeing somebody that like needs help right and and we preach hospitality on every single level yet there are people that like need help you know so I was like oh we've got all this chicken soup let's just drop it off and Steve's like dude it's not like a soup kitchen you can't just give these people soup and have it be okay. So Steve and a couple of people from Broad Street came up with the idea of opening this restaurant that was reliant on the backs of this chicken that is food waste, right? This chicken that is food waste that actually by sparing these backs gives us a better product for our Federal Donuts customers. Also, so we, we create this, this menu that features soups amongst salads and sandwiches and it has a full bar and it's like a cool restaurant but like kind of a luncheonette and 100% of the profit of Rooster Soup Company goes towards Broad Street ministry. So we donate all of it. You know, you come in and have a bowl of soup and you're basically covering the cost of like a meal for somebody. There will never probably ever be a better segue into my social impact giving zone of this interview. (laughs) I didn't even do that on purpose. (laughs) No, I I love the concept and I had the fortunate opportunity to visit and I sat down with Danny from your team and She was telling me about an organization that you've done some work with. There's a guy and he hosts dinners for Palestinian families and Israeli families. Does this, am I making sense? Danny was probably telling you about was OGS, which is Our Generation Speaks, which is an amazing organization that basically incubates Palestinians and Israelis that are looking to form startups, brings them to like Brandeis and incubates these ideas and awards seed money for startups. The idea thinking that you give opportunity to Israelis and Palestinians are like-minded in the sense that they just want to succeed, you know, and if you take them sort of out of their element. And Our Generation Speaks, founded by this amazing kid named Ohad Hello, who's much younger than I am and considerably more intelligent, but I just think that it's representative of probably a lot of people in Israel and a lot of people in Palestine that just want to crush it. Like all of us, right? Hearing a little bit about that from Danny was one of the main kicks in the ass for me to start this podcast. Get out of here, really? No joke. Because I had like 
fiddled with it and I love chatting with chefs and I hear these awesome stories. And when I started chatting with her sitting at the counter, Rooster Soup Co., I was like, all right, that's it. I'm like, I'm fucking starting this podcast. She's like, really? Are you starting a podcast? You should. <laughs> and that's one of the big kick in the asses well, for I, me. I appreciate that. I mean, we, we want to take it a little bit further and actually bring people together like at the restaurant. But we're going to have events and uh, you should come and be part of it. It's yeah, really dude. amazing. I would love to. That's great. You recently won James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef in the U.S., which is an incredible honor. And you gave an incredible speech. Oh, thank you. And I heard it. But can you just share the premise of that speech for the listeners? I'm talking about overall, this one's for you. I don't know. Something about that just like hit home. You just rattled off people probably who have had an impact in your life. I mean, it was like my partner, Stephen Cook, this one's for you. Eli Culp, this one's for you. Yeah. But, you know, I I just feel like we, I owe all of my success to these people that are in my life. And I feel like the other nominees who deserved it as much as me were, I'm so fucking honored to even be on those lists with those people, right? It's a huge deal. It's a huge list. I am honored. I am like so proud of like every one of my employees. I ended up forgetting a line for my team at Zahav. So I'm going to take this opportunity to thank Andrew, Matt, Jorge, and Dave. Okay, my Zahav team. I was like, I blew it on the stage. It was hard at the lights. You can't tell if people are laughing at your jokes or get it. And I had to pee and I was thirsty at the same time. But I just feel like you were in these positions because of these amazing teams and people that have been on our lives forever, like pushing us to be there and all of the guests. And yeah, it was a really huge moment, man. It was like bananas and it was like such a big night. And like we, it was cool. I heard Steven Starr also thank The Door, which I thought was amazing because I, I had this big joke. I'm like, we, it's a bunch of like narcissist chefs that don't ever mention their publicist. Right. And I'm like, we're fucking at like James Beard Awards. Like, come on, dude. Like, you know, there's like a whole committee of people that we're trying to convince and magazines and this and pitching. And we have all these people working for us to try to get us out there. And yes, of course, the food has to be excellent. We have to be great at our jobs, but it's like the story has to get out there too. The story has to get out there. And, and you have these groups of people that believe in what you do that like battle for you like all the time. So I thought it was really cool that Stephen mentioned that, you know, and I think it was a really big deal and, and it was important for us to talk about the people like uh, Sarah that are in our lives that, that sort of vouch for us. It also happened to be Yom Hatzma'ut. It was Israel's Independence Day. It was like Independence Day that day. So it's um, amazing. And the last time I had won, well, I won uh, Best Chef Mid-Atlantic in 2011 and it also fell on Israeli Independence Day. How about that? So it was a big one. So it's the fucking biggest honor ever. It's like amazing to me that we are even considered for it. We got a couple really awesome nominations. Camille Cogswell was nominated... She's our pastry chef at Zahav. She was nominated for Rising Star. We were nominated for Service, which is like fucking amazing and outstanding chef. And I can't believe it. Yeah, that's great. Can you, I put this under the giving back section, if you will, but your trips to Israel, do you do for staff or friends or both? The first trip that we took to Israel with people that we led was for our opening staff at Zahav. Uh, we've taken a couple, we, took, we did a chef's tour, which was like eight chefs and Joe Nathan, the cookbook author, came with us. And Why do you do those? Well, that one we did, it was my brother's 10 year, it was the anniversary of his death, actually. And so we did a big tribute dinner for him. And we did it just because we wanted to lead a tour in Israel. And the people that come on the trip subsidize the chefs. And I'm like, when do you get to hang out with like Joe Nathan, Murad Lalu, John Sawyer, Nate Appleman, Adam Sobel, Jason Marcus? Who am I forgetting? Alon Shai was on that trip. Steve Cook sat It was like such an all star. So I know I'm forgetting people. Right. And then the second trip was Alon and. Uh, John Currents and Ashley Christensen and Emily. So it's like it was us and like 13 other people, you know? So that was really cool. I haven't done one of those in a while, though, and I guess I'd like to do another, but we just don't have the time. You're going to come with us, right? Dude, don't have to twist my arm. Dude, I've never been to Israel. What? I was the just fuck, talking about this man? last night. I went what to is wrong with you, Nur. Dude? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. On the 20th, I was dining with a colleague and she was asking me if I've ever been to Israel. I was like, I actually haven't. She's like, what? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense, actually. It's a little bit weird. I know. I'm down. Well, why don't you come? I'm down. All right. We talked about your kids briefly. So I want to know how you're setting an example for your kids in giving back. How old are they right now? So uh, David is almost six. Lucas just turned three. Lucas, he doesn't like to give anything even or even. No sharing, hugs, no giving. Hugs, kisses to me and now. 
Uh, none of that. David, we have like a little Sadaka box for him. And can you explain? Sadaka is basically charity and it's philanthropy. In every home, in every business, whatever, everybody has a Sadaka box and you put in what you can and then you give it. And so for him, it's we're going to buy toys for kids that like don't have it or whatever. And I want him obviously involved, you know, but it's a really weird thing. I had this conversation with him last night because both my kids are like relatively picky. David's getting much better. I was talking about, we were eating an apple. I was cutting the apple. I eat the core and my dad eats the core. Seeds and all? Seeds and stem and all that shit. And it was literally from my dad, I think, growing up with fucking nothing. I was eating the core and my kids were like, oh, that's the worst. You know, and I was like, dude, your Saba does this. And he does this because that was what they had. This is like, I guess also my Jewish guilt in tandem with the good principles. But I was like, you know, you won't eat that pasta with chicken, right? And you're going to eat this apple. But like a lot of people don't have choices. A lot of people are just happy to do that. And when Saba would eat the apple core, it was because that was it. They didn't have anything else. So it was like trying to explain that to like a nearly six-year-old. Did he get it? I think they get it, but I also think it's really instilling like sometimes just phrases for them to get. Like for him to understand that Sadako was for kids that like didn't have toys, like that works and he'll elaborate on that and he'll repeat it back to me and I think eventually he'll understand it. Do you speak Hebrew to them? We do minimal Hebrew. My Hebrew still sort of sucks. Can you tell me in Hebrew what your kids mean to you? I can do this Hebrew. Can I yell at him? Kola chayim. Kola chayim shali. Kola ahava. Should I tell you what I said? Yeah. So my kids are my life, all my love, all the things that matter to me are for them. That's awesome. Thank you. All right, let's do speed round. Okay. First thing that comes to your mind. What did you have for dinner last night? I had the pasta that my kids would fucking eat, dude. And it was delicious. Did you make it? I did. I did. It was chicken, butter, tomato, olive oil, Parmesan cheese, walnuts too, yeah. When was the last time you ate fast food? I don't remember, but I don't like have a problem with eating fast food on occasion. What's your favorite fast food? I think Chick-fil-A is pretty exceptionally good. But I'm also like, a, I grew up going to Wendy's. So I like Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers Plain. They, I think dude, a, that's what I ordered. It's a dollar six, dude. Like it's nothing. But what you do is you buy two of them and you take off the bun and you squish them together, bro. Have you done that? No, but Welcome. I will be next time Katie and I are on the way home from an event. We're hungry and go through the Wendy's drive-thru. Just if that happens to happen. Sure. I like, I don't mind. I, I don't eat fast food often, but I don't like have a problem with it. Yeah. If you flew into Israel tomorrow, what's the first thing you're eating off the plane? I would probably have to stop at a bakery and eat like a bag of barikas. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Brown butter is kind of a hard one to beat. I like the charcoal as it burns out. I think that's a really good smell. We make lemon verbena syrup from now till late September. We have a farmer that will come with like just bags of fresh verbena. And when he shows up, usually it's like in the middle of service. It's like, I'm like, oh, Farmer Paul's here because lemon verbena is like one of my favorite smells ever. A smell in the kitchen you hate? Sometimes with like radishes and like pickling, it just smells like nuclear like fart bomb. <laughs> What pisses you off in the kitchen? I don't like it when people put shit on their cutting board that isn't for cutting. You know, like if somebody puts like a plate on their cutting board, I have a hard time with that. If you had nothing to do with food, what industry would you be working in? I think it would be really interesting to be in either drug counseling or like do research. I think that would be cool for me. Like I would enjoy that. Honestly, if I could like stay at home with my kids, man, and like take care of shit, I would do that. I think it would be fun. In closing here, what would you want people to say about the career of Michael Salamanoff, your legacy in the industry? I'm not good with these, man. I don't, I'm like very passionate about what it is that I do. And I feel like I have worked to open up people's mind about Israel. And I guess that would be it. Really what I want is for you to come to Israel with me, Cappy. And then my work is done. Now, I don't know. It's hard to say about my, what myself. I think it's like a little bit weird. People are going to say what they want. Hopefully it makes an impact though. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, dude. Quote. We preach hospitality on every single level, yet there are people that need help. This is one of the precise reasons I started this podcast. Thanks again to Chef Michael Salomonoff. Find more on him and his restaurants at www.cookandsolo.com. That's cook, the letter N, solo.com. And join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Michael will discuss a dish called Today beat. This is a chicken and rice dish made popular by Iraqi Jews that Michael makes for his two children at home. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. 
This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, a.k.a. The Wizard, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. And thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.